If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Today I want to talk to you about Antioch Christians. Christians from that ancient city of Antioch. That might sound boring. I suspect that would have sounded boring to the high school version of me many years ago. But those two words, Antioch Christians in my opinion, are among the most significant in human history. It was in Antioch that the first fully integrated Jew-Gentile church was formed and flourished. Later on, in Acts, the church in Antioch becomes the hub the headquarters for an overt mission to Gentile nations. After the book of Acts was written, the city of Antioch earned the reputation as the cradle of Christianity. That speaks to its significance, doesn't it? The cradle of Christianity. Now today, that word Antioch means almost nothing. You might be more familiar with Antioch, California than you would be about that ancient city, Antioch. Thankfully, the Bible preserves for us the memory, though, of this massively important city. And we'll see that significant, the significance of the city today and weeks ahead as we study the book of Acts. Christian is a word that's also in the book of Acts in chapter 11. And Christian is a word that means less and less these days. 70% of Americans uh, identify themselves as Christian. That includes Muslims, no, sorry, not Muslims, sorry, Mormons, what I meant to say, Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberal Protestants, as well as evangelicals. All identify as Christians even though each of those has their own view of salvation. Therefore, they can't all be Christian. What is a Christian? That gets harder to define outside your own church or denomination. It gets harder still to define outside your own country or in another hemisphere. In much of the Muslim world, they think Christians believe in three gods. They believe that Americans are Christians and Christians are Americans. And because Americans are loose morally, Christians are loose morally. Well, because of these possible confusions, some Christians have given up identifying themselves as Christians. They use different terms. Some call themselves Jesus followers or believers or born again. And indeed, in the New Testament, there are several different names or labels or banners for the followers of Jesus. We've seen several in the book of Acts thus far. Sometimes these followers are called believers or disciples or brothers. In chapter 9, it's one of my favorite, those belonging to the way, the way. They're called the church. And they're called saints. 
And any of these is fine for Christians to use, to identify themselves, especially where you're given the opportunity to explain what it means and what you really believe. But so is that word Christian. That's a fine word to use to describe who we are and what we identify with. It has a marvelous history. Look down at verse 26 in Acts 11. Toward the end of that verse, it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. That's a term that needs defining these days, but it is a beautiful term, and it has a rich heritage. Now, we'll get to the rest of Acts 11 in just a bit, but I want to just sort of pick apart this this phrase here, the sentence that in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Why were they called Christians? Why here? Why, that? Why now? Well, it seems as though this was a label that was at first put on them by outsiders, by non-Christians. It may have been at first a term of derision and mockery. The Christians, little Christ, they're of the Christ party. We know that later on it was used as a legal charge by the state. You could get punished for being Christian. First Peter talks about suffering as a Christian and he might be using the term in this legal sense. You're in a, a courtroom declared Christian and you're in trouble for it. In the year AD 64, Nero blamed the great fire of Rome on that group called Christians. Notice that it seems in this context, as we start to study chapter 11, we'll see this, that something new is taking place here, something inexplicable was happening here, which may be relevant to the new name in this new place. Notice they were called Christians. They were not called Jews 2.0. They weren't called real Jews or reformed Jews or anything like that. We're going to see in Acts 11, Jew and Gentile in the same church. And that's significant and deserving of a new name. So you can imagine the citizens of Antioch thinking, what do we call these people? They're not just Jews. What do we call that group? Well, what do they talk about? What's their message? What's their hope? What's their identity? Christ. It's all about Christ, the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah. They're Christians. It was only after the New Testament was written that that term Christian became widely embraced and used by Christians themselves. It was at first put on them But you can imagine eventually how it would become endearing, how it would be a high compliment and a a fitting name. Christ was derided. Christ suffered shame and was wrongly charged and sentenced to where his name would be a privilege, to be accused of identifying with the Christ, the true Christ, to be found speaking so much about that Christ that they say, that's the fitting label for you, the Christians. Thank you very much. What a privilege. What a blessing. Well, let's read about these Antioch Christians in chapter 11, starting in verse 19. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let me suggest to you four priorities that we can draw from this passage. Four priorities are modeled by these Christians in the story and therefore can apply to us as a church. We'll give more time to the first simply because it's the most significant, I think, for this moment in the story of Acts. And the first is the making of Christians. This is priority number one, the making of Christians. The making of Christians is just not part of the story here in the book of Acts. It's the story of Acts, isn't it? That's what it's about. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They are to witness to gospel hope on account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we saw how news of that spread like wildfire at first in the city of Jerusalem. That's Acts 2 through chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, it spreads geographically. Would you turn back to chapter 8 just to remind yourself of some of this because it's, it's actually referenced in our passage, you may have noticed. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember that Acts 1.8 can function like a, a table of contents for the book. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the writer Luke is telling us that this thing is moving along according to plan. As persecution happens in Jerusalem and God's people flee, they take the gospel with them. And where do they go? They spread out in Judea. They go up to Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
It's spreading geographically. We've seen it start to spread ethnically with the conversion of the Samaritans in chapter 8 and the Ethiopian in chapter 8. Then we get to chapter 9 with the conversion of Saul. It might feel like a parenthesis in this plan of the gospel going to the nations unless we realize how important verse 15 is of chapter 9. Look there, chapter 9, verse 15. Here in the midst of Saul's conversion experience, Ananias, a messenger of the Lord, is going to go and communicate with Saul. And here's what God tells him, chapter 9, verse 15. Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's going to preach to Israelites. He's going to defend himself in courts before kings. That's chapters 23 to 28. It's a big part of the book. And yet also very important to the book of Acts is Paul on mission to the Gentiles. And here it's told before he even starts, he's going to be an instrument for my name before the Gentiles. This is how the, the, the book of Acts ends, in fact. Fast forward to chapter 28. Look there. Here Paul's in prison. And when he's in prison and gets opportunity to talk of the gospel to whoever will listen, here's what he says. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. You see, it's a big deal, this thing of God's saving plan going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth to save the nations. We saw last week from chapter 10 and then into chapter 11 in the first half, what a monumental moment that was when the first full-blooded Gentiles become Christians and are fully accepted as first-rate members of the household of God without any entrance exam, without any entrance requirements, except what is the case for everyone, Jew or Gentile, repent and believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. We saw last week the unavoidable, astounding conclusion of chapter 11, verse 18. The Lord has granted repentance to Gentiles. And so now we come to verse 19 and the scattering that happened back in chapter 8. Remember that? Persecution in Jerusalem and they scattered. Now it's going to pick up that story but much later on. Those who scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, does anyone think that they can picture those cities on a map in your head? Go ahead and raise your hand if you actually can. I'm just curious. I probably couldn't. So that's why I have a map for you. It's about time for us to look at a map. We're probably overdue because a lot of cities and places have been flying at us in the book of Acts. And unless you've spent some time over there or you're just a map geek, you don't know where these things are usually. So it started down low there in Jerusalem and in the province of Judea. This is actually a map of Acts 11 cities, including ones we looked at last week. So that's why Joppa is there. That's where Peter was in the Cornelius story. 
Caesarea, that's where Cornelius was. So there's going back and forth between Caesarea and Joppa. But now, in chapter 11, verse 19, those who scattered because of the persecution happening in Jerusalem went up to Phoenicia and to Antioch. Some to Cyprus. Tarsus is on this map because that's where Saul is from. And later on in the story of Acts 11, we'll see Barnabas go to Tarsus to get Saul. So it's spreading. And for many, it's spreading among just Jews. Did you catch that? Verse 19, this is important. So some spread, that's good. And some were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Up to a point, that was a given. That's what you did. That, that's, that's the norm. This was an offshoot of Judaism. It was the fulfillment of Judaism. But then verse 20, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's where they grew up, but then they moved to Jerusalem at some point. Then persecution happened there, and then they fled north. They came to Antioch, and there they spoke to Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenists. Now, if you're following along closely in our study of the book of Acts, you might remember we've come across that word already. It was back in chapter 6. There I said Hellenists are Greek-ish Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-cultured Jews. That's definitely what it is in Acts 6. Here, it's not. It's the same word. I know it's confusing. We would prefer it not to be the case. But Hellenists can either be Greek-speaking Jews or Greek-speaking Greeks. And because there is this flow to the book of Acts, and because dominoes just keep falling one after another in steady progression, this here, Hellenists, have to be Greeks, Gentiles. And some were just indiscriminately giving the gospel to them. And, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them in a great number who believe turn to the Lord. Like Acts 10, Antioch is massively significant in God's plan. There the gospel is indiscriminately given to these Syrian Gentiles. Now how did these messengers know to do this? We're not told. Uh, we know from last week, chapter 10 and 11, um, most Jews would have a, a little bit of trouble with this one. Peter had some trouble getting his arms around this one. The saints back in Jerusalem had trouble understanding what Peter was up to afterwards. But these, not so much. We don't know exactly how they had the idea for the gospel to spread among Gentiles. Maybe, maybe, not likely, but maybe what had happened with Cornelius had gotten to them. Maybe they had pieced together the evidence from the Old Testament better than some of their brethren had. Peter didn't get it at first. The saints in Jerusalem didn't get it at first. Maybe, maybe they were piecing together what we can now see so clearly connected and related to this issue where promises given to Abraham were for the nations, where the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, David says it's a charter for mankind. That's pretty big, not just Jewish. Some psalms, like 
the one we sang today, Psalm 67. Talk about the nations rejoicing and being glad and coming to God's worship. The Old Testament prophets foresaw a day when, when the ends of the earth and the nations and all the kings would come in to God and give him his worship. But regardless of how these, these Jewish saints came to the knowledge of giving the gospel to Gentiles, the point here is simply that they did. The gospel is going forth and continues to spread and continues to cross boundaries. The dominoes just keep falling. They keep falling because this is God's doing. The making of disciples, we should stress, is God's business. He does it. He makes disciples. The hand of the Lord was with them. And that's why a great number believed and turned to the Lord. We've seen throughout the book of Acts, God's initiative and his sovereign orchestration of events. Sometimes it's explicit, like in chapter 10, when he sends an angel, and the angel speaks, and the angel sends Peter. And in the, in the, the vision, or the, the angel sends Cornelius and the messengers. There's sending, there's going, there's orchestration all throughout. Sometimes God's orchestration isn't spoken of explicitly, but how can we deny it? Like in chapter 8, verse 1, when persecution happens in Jerusalem and it pushes God's people into Judea and Samaria. Yeah, God isn't mentioned in those verses but how can you not see that this is his plan? This is what Jesus foretold at the beginning of Acts. This is what is happening now. God is using opposition in this ironic way of spreading the gospel through it. But in making Christians, yes, God makes Christians, but he's chosen to use human messengers. We should continue to be baffled by this because he didn't have to. He could have written in the sky the gospel. He could have rained down tracks on humanity, and there, everyone has it. That would have saved some money, uh, spending money on missionaries. Man, missionaries are expensive. Yeah, they, they could die. It's dangerous out there. We could have saved some money and some blood if God had just rained down tracks on all of humanity. He could have used an angel with a loud, angelic voice. I wondered that back in chapter 10. God's going to save Cornelius, so God brings an angel there, not to give Cornelius the gospel, but to tell Cornelius, have your friends, go get Peter, have them bring Peter up here, and then Peter's going to give you the message. The angel could have given the message, but God is just dead set on this thing of using human messengers to save human beings. It's remarkable. And he not only uses human messengers, but often he uses common human messengers. Sometimes he uses the all-stars, like Peter. Sometimes he uses uh, uh, all-stars second team, like, like Philip the evangelist and Stephen the evangelist. And often he uses people that have no name in the book of Acts. They're unnamed. They're not apostles. They're, they're not super preachers. They're not famously skilled orators. And that's what we have here. That's what we have in chapter 11. 
just some guys. We don't know who they are. We know their background. We know their, their city of origin. And we know that they had the hand of the Lord with them. And they spoke of the gospel to Jew and Gentile. And the Lord was adding to their numbers. The book of Acts, I think, has been helpfully prodding us as a church to talk about Jesus more than we do, to represent him to the world more boldly and clearly and happily than we do. I hope that's been happening for you. I know it's been happening for me. It's a book about the gospel spreading, about the making of Christians. How can it not encourage and convict and inspire? We've pondered together how each new move in our lives from a, from a city uh, to a new city to a new neighborhood, each one of those has the same old assignment, the same glorious, eternal, God-sent assignment to represent him in that place. We don't have to wonder why he's put us there, why we had to leave there. It's a new assignment. We've seen together how the gospel should inflame us so that we can't contain it. Acts 4.20, we can't help but speak what we have heard and seen. And so if we're not speaking of him, it might be because either we haven't heard and seen enough or we've forgotten what we've heard or seen or we're not reminding ourselves of what we've heard and seen and we're not stirring up awe in what we've heard and seen. And when we're really awestruck about what we've heard and seen, then hopefully we will say we can't help but speak. You never know who God is going to use and how he's going to use them. I love the stories in church history where an unknown, unnamed guy was the means by which God saved a later famous heavily used, mightily used by God character in church history. Like, like Charles Spurgeon, this is maybe the most famous. Spurgeon never knew who led him to the Lord, uh, but he talked about what happened that day many different times. It was a snowy day on a Sunday morning, and he went to church, and almost no one was there. The preacher couldn't make it through the snow, and so some layman in the, in the church was tasked with that Sunday sermon. It probably hadn't been previously prepared. He probably wasn't too comfortable in the pulpit. And so he just kept quoting Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon felt like it was God speaking through this man and calling out to him to look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon was that day. And the Lord used him to reach thousands and thousands for the gospel. I love learning of the diversity of God's saving ways and the diversity that Christians use in getting to the gospel with people that they're around. Matt Chandler has a wonderful story about first about him first hearing the gospel. It was in high school and a, a fellow football player simply said to him one day, at some point I'm going to need to tell you about Jesus. Do you want to do it now or sometime later but soon? That's great, right? 
And you might think, well, Matt Chandler was offended and, and he got saved later. But no, it, God used that. He thought that was honest and open and that made him curious. And they got to the gospel. I was once with Mark Dever in a grocery store when he turned around to the lady behind him and said, so how was the Sunday sermon? And I sort of was startled. Well, that's weird. Um, and she wasn't that startled. She said, you know, I've been thinking I need to go to church. Do you have a recommendation? I don't know if she ever got saved or not, but that's one way of starting a conversation, isn't it? Talk to others. See what they do. My wife grew up going to a youth camp where the, the leader would, would ask his students, so who's on your list, your gospel list? Who are you praying for? And who are you working towards the gospel with? And what's next? What's next for each guy, for each girl? Who's on your list? I, I need encouragements in, in concrete examples like this. I, I go looking for them. I, I need I need stories of conversion and stories of witness that I can relate to. I love this book, Surprised by Oxford. It's a memoir of a gal's conversion at Oxford University. She was slowly converted over a year of school as she happened to be around Christians. And they were open about their faith and she asked questions and and eventually those questions got answered and she called herself a, a Christian. In some ways it's spectacular anytime anyone believes and yet sometimes you just think, well, yeah, that's, that seems pretty, pretty normal. It seems like I, I can help someone get from point A to point B by God's grace knowing he makes Christians. It's his business. He's chosen human messengers much of the time he uses common human messengers, not professional orators or debaters. And he is making Christians all over the world. That should inspire us and encourage us. The second priority is the uniting of Christians. What happens when someone believes in Jesus and identifies with him? Well, they identify with others. There's a uniting of Christians. So verse 22 says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. Now notice the obvious, there's a church in Jerusalem, and what's coming in Antioch? A church, not just random scattered believers, but a church a group of identifiable, baptized believers following Christ, representing Christ, and worshiping Christ together. That's what a church is. It's the uniting of Christians. When God saves us, he doesn't save us unto ourselves. He puts us with others, like a family. It's observable. Notice Barnabas saw the grace of God among them, verse 23. Isn't that amazing and fascinating? Grace can't be tested or, or seen. It's not a vapor or a cloud or, or even an odor. But it manifests itself in certain ways. He saw the grace of God, God's grace 
flows out of people, especially when they're together. And who is he uniting? Don't forget, Jew and Gentiles in one. I read extensively from Ephesians 2 last week. We could also have used Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's no one better to attest to the veracity of what's going on there in Antioch than Barnabas. We were introduced to him back in chapter 4. We were told that his name is Joseph, but the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This man's famous for his encouragement. We saw in chapter 4 that Barnabas... He was well-to-do, he had an extra field, and he sold it, and he gave the proceeds to the church for the meeting of the needs of the saints. Luke must think a lot of this Barnabas. He comes up a lot in the book of Acts. We see him here in chapter 11, described, verse 24, as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's trusted among the apostles. He's not an apostle, but he's essentially an apostolic representative as he's sent to Antioch for two things. One, to verify, but also to edify. You see, he's there to, to make sure it's the real deal, to make sure this is the genuine work of God. They haven't believed in another gospel and so he sees the grace of God and was glad, he verified. And then he also edifies. Verse 23, he exhorted them all to re remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He told them, don't give up. Don't turn aside. Don't yawn and then quit this thing. Keep going. Because God's grace is a, a visible grace. It is a steadfast grace. It is a keeping grace. So keep on. And do that with each other. Do it together. No doubt Barnabas' encouragement in verse 24 was to be a model to them for them to do it with each other. Hebrews 10 talks about this so helpfully. Listen to this. Here's what the church is to be and to do. Let us together hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Hebrews 3, it says day to day we should be encouraging each other, exhorting each other in this language of Barnabas to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This is the uniting of Christians. It's closely related to, thirdly, the maturing of Christians. That's the third priority for the church. 
It seems like the the passage could end without what happens next. The church in Antioch has been verified, they've been edified, and they continue to multiply, verse 23 or 24. But that's not quite enough yet. So verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Saul, don't forget about Saul. We haven't heard anything about Saul in over a chapter and a half. But don't let that make you think that he's been idle, just sitting around. In fact, turn back to Acts 9 with me. Let's remind ourselves about this. I won't go into his history. You you probably know it, even if you haven't been with us in our study of the book of Acts. He used to be a persecutor of the church, and Jesus showed up, and he was a changed man. So let's pick up in the story after this change. In verse 26, look at that. Verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Remember those people he had been people he had in his sights, we could say, people he was persecuting left and right in various ways. And hence, rightly so, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, there's our guy, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus, Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul, verse 28, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus, remember that's where Barnabas went looking for Saul in chapter 11. Now, what I just read in chapter 9 is a very short summary. The distance of time between Saul's conversion in chapter 9 and him showing up in Antioch with Barnabas in chapter 11, the experts say, is about nine years. Can you believe it? Nine years. We think like it happened the next day because that's what's next in our Bibles. We did Saul's conversion in chapter 9, Cornelius' conversion in chapter 10, discussion about Cornelius' conversion, beginning of chapter 11. Saul's going to get mentioned here at the end of chapter 11. Is it the next day? No, for nine years, Saul has been busy doing what we read about in chapter 9, going in and out among them, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Galatians tells us that three years of that nine-year period was him in the desert getting some training from the Lord, it seems like. Well, we'll leave that for our study of Galatians someday. That's a complex issue right there. But, but other than that three-year stint in the desert, He's been preaching and teaching from various home bases like Damascus and then Jerusalem and then his hometown of Tarsus and then later Antioch. Paul will be working out of Antioch for the rest of his life, we could say. It'll be his sending church. It'll be headquarters 
for the mission to the Gentiles. Partly because Barnabas, while he was in Antioch, had a light bulb moment. What's going on here is good, but we need more. I'm going to go get Saul in Tarsus, and we're going to come back together, and we're going to kick this thing out as co-teachers for a year, teaching many people. For a whole year. See it in verse 26? They met with the church and taught a great many people. Notice here in Antioch, these Christians are called the church. They are a church. Notice the church meets together. They met with the church. That's what the word church means. Assembly. It's coming together. I have no idea what it means to be an online member of a church. That's silly. The church in Antioch met together. Notice for instruction. They needed more instruction. It was worth a whole year of Paul and Barnabas' time and effort to give more instruction to this church. It was not enough that they were saved and pretty healthy. They needed more. That's not to imply that Christians only need one year of intense study and learning and then they don't need any more study and learning. No, this one year would have been the starter package. This would have modeled for them lifelong learning. As Peter will later say when he writes 2 Peter, you're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what disciple means, that word disciple. It means follower and learner of someone. Christians are disciples. That's a great word for us. Christians are those, we're told in Acts 2, verse 42, who devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostle Paul, yeah, that's his name as well. Saul sometimes, Paul uh, more heavily later on. Not because it's his Christian name, just because he was usually around Gentiles and Paul was a more Gentile or Roman or Greek name than Saul. So Saul, later referred to Paul, he understood Acts 2.42 quite well, devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching. We might think of Paul as a missionary, as a church planter, as an evangelist, and he was all those, but he was also a discipler, a teacher. The rest of Acts shows us this. Paul often will do an evangelistic tour and then cycle back for a discipleship-strengthening tour. He's teaching believers. He's instructing them. He's encouraging them. Oftentimes when he was leaving a church and a city for another, in his final hours there, he would give more instruction. You can read about the funniest account of this in Acts 20. In Acts 20, it's Sunday morning. They break bread. Paul gets teaching. And it literally says, at midnight, he was still going, and some kid fell out the window because he was sleeping, fell to the ground, and died. So you'd think, well, let's call it quits. It's been a long day. Someone died for crying out loud. But Paul goes down, raises him from the dead, and then goes back at it. And you'd think, come daybreak, when it says they ended, 
that people would just be thinking, oh, good grief, finally. I didn't think it would ever end. A kid died for crying out. A kid died. That's a long sermon. It's killing us, Paul. It just says this. They were not a little comforted. In other words, by what he said. They were not a little comforted. They were much comforted by what he said. Teaching is a big part of what the church must do. That's why we're here today. It's not the only reason we're here today, but it's why we meet weekly it's why we do other things. We need growth and instruction. We need maturing. You know, if you're not a Christian and you've observed some really bad Christians in your past, hypocrites, immoral, judgmental and proud and condescending, can I just say I'm sorry, number one, that you've encountered people like that, but there are two possible explanations for someone like that. One explanation is that person says they're a Christian, but they're not a Christian. We have a category for that as, as Christians, according to the Bible. There are some who say that they're Christian, and it's not the real deal. Their heart hasn't been changed. But here's another explanation for coming across a, a hypocritical or, or a sometimes immoral Christian. We're works in progress. Bear with us. We're works in progress. This is in the Bible as well. We're not perfect yet. He's getting us there, and it's slow going. And much of that is our fault. And so if we've stepped on your toes before, we say, I'm sorry, and you shouldn't be surprised. If you become a Christian, you will sometimes offend people. You will sometimes not represent Jesus as well as you should. But, but we're works in progress. He's getting us there eventually, even while we're sometimes slow and uncooperating. Part of maturation for the Christian is this fourth thing. It's the care of Christians. Verses 27 to 30 tell us about the care of Christians. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there'd be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, a couple details might distract you from what is the main point of this last paragraph of chapter 11. One being prophets. You might, you might stumble at that. You might think, prophets? Is this for real prophets who foretell the future? Yeah. In fact, this is all over the Bible. People hear from God and represent God. And sometimes those people speak for God in a way that leads to holy writ, to holy scripture. And sometimes God speaks through those people in less consequential, in less substantial ways like this. You might wonder if God speaks to people like that today. To that I would say, I don't see why not. I don't see anything in Scripture that says that is going to end. I don't know if it is as prevalent as it was back in Acts, but it can happen. God can speak. 
And yet I also know that when people say that they speak for God, that must be tested. 1 Thessalonians 5 makes this crystal clear when it says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. you got to test them. That's prophets. You might have got hung up over this. Great famine over all the world. You might wonder, what do historians say? Was there a famine over all the world anywhere around this time? Well, not exactly. Not literally. This is probably typical hyperbole. All over the world. For Luke, could have meant all over the Roman world. It could have meant all over the known world. It could have meant all over the place. We speak like that. We of all people should know about hyperbole. We are the worst ever of all time, anywhere, on all planets. We are the worst at hyperbole. And so don't get mad at Luke for saying all over the world when it probably was a little more localized than that. But we do know from history that in the mid-40s in the Roman world, there were several famines that affected Egypt and Syria and Jerusalem, all over the world. But neither of these is the main point. The main point of this last paragraph is that the Antioch Christians are doing what we've seen the Jerusalem Christians do many times. Caring for their own, loving their people, meeting needs. We saw it in Acts chapter 2 and 4 and 5. The care for the church by the sacrifice of the saints as they give to meet needs. When we studied those passages before, we said... This isn't Christian communism or socialism. This is all volitional. This is all voluntary and free. And Acts 11 follows suit. It's volitional. Verse 29, the disciples determined on their own, apart from Agabus's revelation, apart from the, the apostles' instruction. They determined everyone on their own, according to their own ability, they would send relief to Jerusalem in view of the famine to come. But don't so emphasize the volitional, the voluntary, the free, that you miss how remarkable this is. They gave. The famine's coming for them and Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been under persecution for the last 10 years or so. They might be in more dire circumstances than those up in Antioch. And besides, Antioch guys, they're pretty rich. They're pretty wealthy. It's a metropolis city. It's the third biggest in the Roman world. And so they have a little bit more and they give because they can, because they see a need, because this is a mark of God's grace, because this is consistent with the gospel. It's not a gospel command, but it's a gospel consistency and something we should feel compelled to do when we see a brother in need. They're brothers. You see that key word in verse 29? They are brothers. Ponder its, its theological significance at this point. Jews and Gentiles in Antioch are brothers with the Jews in Jerusalem because of Christ. They are in the family of Christ. They are Christians and they are brothers. And so they give out of love. This authenticates the church even further, doesn't it? The Antioch church is the real deal. It is so legitimately a church 
that they not only do what the Jerusalem church does, but they are taking the lead in caring for the Jerusalem church. It's like little brother is meeting the needs of big brother because they're brothers. Jesus said, you will love one another and the world will know that you are mine by your love for each other. Why do we give as a church? Whether it's to meet a need of relief or to plant a church or to send missionaries to North Africa, why do we give? Well, because the needs are great and we're in it together. We're in it together. We're brothers and sisters. We're in the family. We're on mission. We're making Christians for crying out loud. I mean, God's doing it, but he lets us in on it. We are uniting Christians. As more get saved here, they come in, they join with us, we lock arms, we're in it together. We got to grow together. We got to mature more and more. We got to care for each other. There are needs to be met. And just our simple operating costs of a church $1.7 million a year is what it takes for us to have this building and do the ministries that we do and support the pastoral staff that we have. $1.7 million is boggling to me. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Desert Springs. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you that you give with such joy. Thank you that you're so quick to see a need and meet a need. It's, it's wonderful. Let's not be weary in well-doing. Let's excel in this grace gift of giving to the church, to the ministry, and to the needs of others. From this international church in Antioch, the first international church, the gospel went out. It went out beyond Antioch to, to those cities in Asia Minor, eventually to, to Rome all the way to the east, I'm sorry, to the west, to Spain. From Spain, it got eventually to New Mexico. And here we are. Thank you, Antioch Christians. Thank you, Jesus. Are you a Christian? Are you in on this? I pray that you are. I don't know what you think of Christians. I'd love to sit down with you sometime and talk about any hang-ups you have about a Christian, being a Christian. I'd love to hear your story, answer what I can, and tell you what the Bible says. A Christian is one of the, you know, it is the most wonderful thing in this world to identify with the Christ, the King, the Savior, to have your sins forgiven, and not just be right with God, but to be connected with others who are right with God. It's not a perfect community, but it's a genuinely heavenly community. It's otherworldly, and it just keeps getting better. We'll have our hiccups, we'll have our speed bumps, we'll have our conflicts that need resolution, but, but we know where this is going. One day there will be a new humanity in a new heaven and a new earth where there's no sin, no jealousy or rivalry, no pride, no presumption, just love and worship 
and Jesus at the center of it all. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for those who are with us who haven't yet come to Jesus for salvation. We pray that they would believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sins and was raised and offers forgiveness for all who would come to him, for all who would give up on themselves and their former ways of saving face and saving themselves before you. And they would lean upon Jesus. They would believe, trust, and cling. Perhaps you would do that here in this place, Lord. Perhaps you would grant repentance to these Jews or Gentiles who are here yet and haven't yet repented and had faith in Jesus. For us all, Lord, we pray for the making of Christians and the uniting with other Christians and the maturing together as Christians and caring for other Christians. We need your help. We need your wisdom. Whatever good we have, whatever good we've done, whatever blessing we find in this local church, all glory goes to you. For from you and through you and to you, Lord Jesus, are all things. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.